1: I, I am on this track with a few other researchers like Catherine Nice steele and Jessica Lewis, at Maryland, where I wanted to talk about Black joy, not Black boy joy, which has become commodified, and not, like I was mentioning earlier, the bourgeois manifestations of Black girl magic, right? But the kinetic orality, which is Kyra Gaunt's term, or um, the um, embodied cognition, which is what I use in the book
0: where we express our relationship to the world through our joy in moving through it. One of the first things we always like to do on New Books in Tech is ask about the author. So who is Andre Brock?
1: So Andre Brock is currently an associate professor in the School of Literature, Media, and Communication at Georgia Tech, part of a a cluster hire on Black Media Studies. My research is uh, basically... Uh, how do I describe it? I call it race in the digital, but I I should really call it blackness in the digital. And so I've been studying how black folk are understood and represented and seen in online spaces since Hurricane Katrina.
0: And why is Hurricane Katrina the historical
1: event that you start from? Uh, one, that was when I was writing my dissertation And two, two, um, it was a really signal event uh, in the earlier years of Web 2.0 when we still weren't, when Black folks still weren't really understood as contributors to the digital. Like if if they saw us, it was either from the wrong side of the digital divide or it was uh, isolated uh, exemplars of excellence. You know what I mean? So to see Black people, everyday Black people, come online and say, hey, this coverage is messed up and these ways that you're framing us is messed up, I thought was really important.
0: Yeah, so what is uh, everyday Black
1: person? Uh, not the bougie, not the HBCU grad, not the entertainer with mega millions, uh, but uh, I was shouting out uh, Kishon, um Thompson the other day, her Twitter handle is at the PBG because she came out with the concept of every uh, black girl magic and her black girl magic is not about celebrating black excellence in the form of our success in the material or cultural worlds. It's about celebrating the successes of people trying to do everyday things. So her, her formulation is like the young sister in the kitchen uh, pulling her baby's hair together uh, before school or, you know, the young guy who, uh, just figured out a way to uh, work two jobs without a car, you know, little little victories, right? And so, yeah, I prefer to focus on the everyday because the internet has given us a chance to see how everyday folk, because the internet is an infrastructure now, how everyday folk express their relationship with race and the technology.
0: So hold up. What what do you mean by infrastructure?
1: I knew you would say that because I just watched your presentation on ecology and data as an infrastructure. Oh. <laughs> 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 uh, so I've been arguing for years that the internet has become our communicative infrastructure uh, in a way that was kind of an unanticipated. Um, it's as much infrastructure as grids of streets or as plumbing, uh, because so many of our everyday activities revolve around having some sort of internet access, right? Whether it's a point of service ter- terminal at your uh, publics or if it's trying to file your taxes on um uh, which I'm supposed to be doing in the next couple of months right online so um, in many ways it's kind of hard to uh, understand how pervasive the internet is which is why I love your ecological approach but Uh, I just I I'm on record as arguing that the Internet really has become infrastructure because you only notice it when it breaks. Hmm. Right. As opposed to something that is marvelous and brand new and shiny and you're constantly turning to admire it in your hand. The Internet is like if you have traffic at your intersection and you can't get through, that's when you understand how essential the Internet is to it.
0: So, you know, one of the things that you talk about in the book is that your book is pushing back against the deficit based ideology or myths related to black people infrastructure as it relates to the Internet. And, and what do you mean by that, that deficit based mythology or, or belief system?
1: Um, so um, to get super nerdy. So there's this theory floating around uh, uh, cultural theory and Black black studies called Afro-pessimism.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And Afro, Afro-pessimism is interesting because it does theorize that Blackness in the West is basically a type of social death. And here they're citing Orlando Patterson, right? And that in no way is the Black body or Black person, Black culture understood as contributing to Western society, right? If you start from that perspective, then it's really easy to understand why uh, blackness when the digital divide was first theorized was always seen on the wrong side of the digital divide, right? Mm. Because they really couldn't comprehend the fact that uh, folk like you and I had computers at home, right? Or that folk who we associated with and their, their big cousins and brothers had two-way pages and laptops before we were even understood to have them, right? And so uh, I argue that, particularly digital divide research, but I'd argue any any most research uh, looking at people of color uh, argues that we come from a deficit model, right? Where where we don't have access to the material, the technical, the literacies, or the uh, infrastructure necessary to be fully functioning citizens of the um, of civil society.
0: How do we get to, or how do you get to distributed blackness? Um, so I mentioned
1: Katrina earlier, and this, the phenomenon I examined was something that had been going on, but was slowly starting to become, to coalesce as a, a, uh, mainstream version of black culture mediated by online, uh, services platforms and, uh, applications. Right. Uh, I've been on, okay. So the you know, your history, but I'll say it for your podcast. Um, the first commercial browser (laughs) was mosaic in the mid nineties. Um, (laughs) Uh, But Black Planet is 1999, right? And so Black Planet was the first opportunity, was the first capitalized opportunity mainstream for Black people to join into what was only then being understood as what we have as a social media world today. But even before that, there was the um, uh, Afrofuturism Listserv, there was the uh, Usenet community, society.moderated.culture.AfricanAmerican, American, where thousands of Black folk would congregate. But Web 2.0 expanded the limited access that Black folk had at their colleges, at their jobs, into their homes. And as a result, we started seeing people who were not elites, right? Who were not academics, uh, who were not people with more money than time and sense. Uh, they started to pile onto the Internet. And I think in many ways they transformed um, what we understand the internet to be. Right. And so distributed blackness is my attempt to theorize across these last 15 years of research, uh, what exactly it means to be black online in a space where, uh, your physicality can't be, uh, apprehended. Right. And I use that term uh, intentionally, right. You can't, you, it's not carceral in the same ways that American society is because we're also allowed to talk back. Right. Uh, and in many ways we do. If you look at Twitter and Instagram and other spaces uh, and in that talking back, we use our own ways of understanding the world mediated by networked uh, digitality to express black culture to people who uh, either are super familiar with it or just not coming
0: across it. So I guess I probably need to back up. What is blackness? Yeah. On <laughs> um, page XXX of the book. <laughs> uh, I don't have the book open. I don't know. I'm i no, like to say that off top. Well if you if you think about it, what is what does blackness mean to Andre Brock?
1: Um a shared communal identity rooted in historical and socio-political context mm-hmm. of oppression uh, and child slavery. And I'm specifically, I'm specifically thinking of the diasporic. So I don't, I understand that blackness can be applied to the West, I mean, to Africa, but Africa has its own national and indigenous histories, right? So I'm specifically speaking of people who uprooted from Africa and placed in a context where their skin color became their primary determinant as opposed to, of identity, as opposed to their national origin. So blackness and the diaspora is that shared communal identity uh, and identity. Uh, in a social and historical context where we were once property, right, but have always managed to manifest an identity, and agency, uh, in many ways defined by the Enlightenment ideals of agency, subjectivity, and the franchise, right? So reason I ask you
0: that is because you say in the book, whiteness is what tech does. Wait a minute, you got the book open?
1: <laughs> okay, Jasmine, I see you. Go ahead, go ahead.
0: I mean, you said whiteness is what tech does the other, but you also talk about how in the internet, like whiteness and white identity is basically the default. It is the universal, it is the background player. And then you have others who start using the internet and then what happens? So whiteness is a default
1: identity for technical and technological Right. Uh, And later in the book, I talk about uh, a Western technocultural matrix, which isn't mine, but which I use freely. And in many ways, whiteness is designed around the control of the natural world of man and the resources contained within both. Right. Uh, And in doing so, it has captured a large proportion of the rest of the world, so much so that they call them developing nations as if they didn't exist beforehand. Mm -hmm. Right. Right. that technical identity transposes really easily to the internet because the internet is a series of interconnected simulations and virtualities. This is the cultural theory side, mm-hmm. right? Uh, and, and all of those simulations and virtualities, whiteness is that default identity. It's white, it's male, it's middle class, it's masculine uh, in, in performance, it's cis and uh, appropriation of sexual identities. Uh, in many ways, it is the norm against which all other internet use is configured mm-hmm. right so um one of the things I loved about the presentation of yours that I watched is that you talked about the ring doorbell right and how the ring doorbell captures a slice of uh of the world in front of it up out to thirty up to thirty meters out. And what I, what I was thinking as I was watching that is that the Ring doorbell is designed as if you are the owner of the property upon which it is surveying, surveying right? Even if you installed it in an apartment, right? But it's primarily marketed to suburban homeowners, right? Those networks that have assembled around Ring uh, based on uh, Ring's own uh, guidance about uh, how it's intended to help homeowners have... Have also installed a type of technological whiteness, right, where their property cannot be invaded or encroached upon by anybody who they find "quote unquote" suspicious, right? But that suspiciousness doesn't seem to extend to the suspiciousness. The suspicion is always extended towards people who are seen as encroaching, which in many suburban cases is the brown body, uh, and so to kind of, because I, I, I strayed a little bit, trying to uh, make sure I included how dope your work is, right?
0: <laughs> yeah, I'm going to tell you enough about me. Let's talk about only you. <laughs> Not to contextualize. Um <laughs>
1: But uh, I'm pulling really heavily from both Cheryl Harris's Whiteness is Property, which is one of my canonical readings for whiteness, but also Richard Dyer's conception of whiteness, right? And whiteness is property in terms of the psychosocial, the cultural and the civic aspects of whiteness have been encoded in jur- in law, in the juridical, and now in technology. But at the same time, that whiteness is both uh, the individual white person and the collective of humanity, right? So it's it's a really – I always say whiteness is mad slick, right, because it manages to have this flexibility where it can, can – be individuals such as Ethan Crouch, convicted of affluenza for killing four people while drunk, drunk driving, right? But it also is the idea that the United States is a white ethno state. It's individual and uh, everything, right? Uh, and so for distributed blackness, my primary claim, my, my move was to claim that blackness is an ecological component in this internet infrastructure, right? That we have transformed the uh, overwhelming whiteness and co- through colorblindness we've transformed the overwhelming whiteness of the internet into a space that is very much uh, a space that is uh, seasoned by blackness.
0: you also talk about black folks' natural internet affinity. What does that mean
1: uh, it means that we black folk are just as good at the internet as they are at basketball or swimming <laughs> <laughs> it's a It's an ecological claim right that 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 means that We are not an interloper on the ecosystem that is the internet, right? We are as much a part of it as any other agent or subject or person attempting to use it. And that although we bring different conceptions of time, space, political agency, and body cognition, those things are just as uh, natural to the simulation that is uh, distributed infrastructures, network infrastructures, as any other. Uh, And in this, I was kind of inspired because I'm pretty sure you've read um, uh, Miller and Slater's The Internet and Ethnographic Approach. Uh, And in that book, they talk about, they studied uh, people in Trinidad for I think it was 11 or 12 years. And what they found is the Trinidadians transformed the Internet that they had into Trinidad, right? And I feel like Black people transform the Internet that they have, they use, they create upon into Black communities and Black culture. right? And so that's where that comes from.
0: What you're saying is people who were either excluded from or neglected in the creation of a thing, a technology, when they get a hold of it, they make it something that is not necessarily what the creator imagined.
1: Even when they're included in the technology, so we could argue that Black folk were included in the technology that is the slavery plantation, right? They still managed to impress upon those institutions their vivification, their sense of life. Right. And so I try to shy away from saying we weren't supposed to be here. It's we were never seen as belonging, which is a different type of approach, um, because if you create a digital network in a country that has a history of slavery, most black folk are included in there, even if by their absence. Does that make sense? And, and, and this I'm drawing from some of the uh, writings on slavery, which says slavery had just as much an effect on white people as it is on, on black people. But you're talking
0: about power then,
1: right? Uh, To a certain extent, absolutely. But I'm also talking about the exercise of subjectivity.
0: You had started talking about, a little bit anyway, Black Twitter. Um, Mm. And you've written on Black Twitter as well, and you you write about it in the book as well. Um, So there was actually this conversation on Twitter yesterday um, related to a... Twitter advertisement saying there was going to be this conversation with black
1: people,
0: <laughs> and they <You> named messy. <laughs> and they named some folks. But then, looking at the responses, black folks were saying some black folks were saying, "Who are these people?" And so, I wanted to know, like, how do we get to a first of all a space or or ideology called Black Twitter, even Black Tumblr, uh, Black Reddit, maybe. Um, But also, how do we get to representatives of this kind of space-place identity performance?
1: We will never. (laughs) So... In the book, I have one of my favorite articles, which unfortunately is not one of my highlight, most highly cited articles, but I revamped it for this book, right? And in the book, I talk about a black, blouse, a black browser developed by Black people for Black people called Blackbird. And one of the most interesting sets of responses from Black folk who were really prominent in tech at the time, but also their commenting audiences was, who are these Black people? I don't know them, they don't know me. This is 2010, right? This is before people had jumped on Twitter, right? They, they were like, so I they, I don't know them, they don't know me, there's no way they could determine my blackness, right? They just picked out some arbitrary set of black people who I don't even really with, right? And so, <laughs> Twitter is not unusual in this particular phenomenon. The difference is those comments about that browser were limited to the blog sites that those people were discussing in the month. where now twi- Twitter, specifically and black Twitter in general and black Twitter specifically has become this platform for cultural critique that many more people see. Right. Mm. So, uh, uh, a friend of mine called them rank and file Twitter, but I don't really care for that particular, um, denomination. I call them Sergeant at arms Twitter because they're constantly involved in policing who they think should be black representatives. And this isn't even the first time I don't, I'm pretty sure you remember when, uh, uh, there were conversations a couple of years ago about Timothy Ann, who was a curator for hip hop at the Smithsonian and how the uh, Sergeant Arms Twitter rose up and said, you know, one, how is this white woman going to be the representative of hip hop at the Blacksonian? But two, they also started dragging all the people who were with verified accounts uh, who rose up to support her. Like, how are you able to define what blackness is in the form of hip hop and the like? So from this perspective, I go back to Du Bois um, who Du Bois said, Blackness is, is understood in the U.S. as a low-class, undifferentiated mass, and but Black Americans are really conscious of this, and so they constantly seek to be not associated with that mass, right? To extrapolate from that, uh, when you start identifying elites, social media has uh, acted as a leveler of sorts. So if uh, these elites don't match certain criteria that the sergeant at arm Twitter has. They're quick to say they ain't my black people or even better, unique to Twitter. I got most of them blocked, right? <laughs> <laughs> or most of them block me. <laughs> right. Or most of them block me. Right. Uh, and so it's a really interesting phenomenon to watch because I don't know if it happens in other cultural spaces. Like I don't really study whiteness like that, but when I see white events like this put on, I don't see white people saying, well, these white people don't represent me, (laughs) right? So black people are really sensitive towards representation, right? They want the people that they feel are best suited to um, perform
0: and enact the types of blackness that they feel they also share. Even if we look at the different spaces, right? Twitter versus Tumblr before um, it became trash, (laughs) Reddit, Wow. Um, When when does the trash happen? When Verizon bought it? When Yahoo bought it? When Yahoo bought it. (laughs) When Yahoo bought it. And, And the culture changed, right? But like these different spaces give us different affordances, right? And then how does that, how do the different affordances mediate Blackness and the performance of Blackness in these different technological spaces?
1: Uh, I think you just asked me an intersectional question. Okay. Uh, <laughs> uh, and so uh, I'm I'm on the record in the book as arguing for technical capacity as an intersectional, a, a fraction of intersectional identity. People will always people. And whatever medium they're communicating with other people in, they will constrain and modify and even in some cases destroy the affordances of that particular medium if they're allowed. Right. So... Uh, We could talk about black sitcoms, right, from the 90s and the types of blackness that were allowed to be performed. We could go high with the Cosbys. We could go mid with Rock. We could go low with the Parkers, right? (laughs) We could talk about these different representations of blackness that were allowed by the conventions of television production, of networks, and TV. We could also talk about radio, right? Uh, In the book, I talk about... uh, Uh, referencing Brian Ward's work on radio and civil rights, uh, when uh, respectability organizations such as the church, such as women's groups, such as HBCUs, wanted to use radio to educate because they saw it as a modern technology Technology where they could reach people outside their physical grasp. They, they wanted to use radio to educate black people to become more modern, more respectable, be better housekeepers, go to school and work uh, respectable jobs so that the white people respect them. But they got frustrated because the most popular radio programmers and DJs were the ones who were slick talking, jive talking, uh, people who managed, right? And so, different of the radio afforded this pedagogical. Uh, capacity, but it also afforded this expressive capacity that many more people found interesting, which is kind of key to Twitter, right? Twitter has an expressive and uh, an appropriate capacity, but much of the power of its appropriate capacity is driven by the, what I call in the book, the libidinal uh, energies and culture of Blackness prior to respectability. For me, the libidinal is the excess of energy, which cannot be confined by political economic uh, uh, analyses or simulations of what the world is, and the example I use in, in the talks I give is uh, political economies focus on exchange value, right? How is your labor, which is a popular topic, how is the work you're doing being transformed to labor, right? As opposed to a hobby, as opposed to a come up, as opposed to a hustle, how has that become? How does your joy become labor? It also applies to resistance for political economy. So how are you resisting the overwhelming authority of mass media? Political economy doesn't understand, I do this because I love it. That love has to be a purpose, right? Or I, I do this because I hate it. That hate has to have a purpose. Libidinal economy says both of those emotions, love and hate, both of those affects are the things that drive the engagement that political economy wants to look at further downstream. Moreover, libidinal economy says, political economy is a particular type of emotional engagement. Mm -hmm. It only wants to focus on the absence of emotion or the transformation of activity to labor, right? I keep going back to pleasure because that's one of the definitions of libidinal economy from the author I use, Francois Lyotard, but he doesn't specifically focus on pleasure. And so Jared Sexton says libidinal economy is uh, desires, hatreds, lust. Any strong emotion that powers some sort of activity can be understood as the basis of a libidinal economy. Respectability is also a libidinal move, right? I talked a little bit earlier about respectability wanting Black people to be appropriate. And in terms of appropriateness, it's being appropriate to the white gaze so that we can be seen as people who are entitled to participate in the public sphere, right? Other people have definitions, different definitions for respectability, largely turning upon um, the control of bodies, but I argue it's it's the control of a particular ideology. It's coercive right And I say in the book, although I'm not the first to say this, Kevin Gaines has said it. Um, e Francis White has said it um, and uh, Evelyn Brooks Higginbotham has said it that respectability proponents don't want to acknowledge the racism in their particular approach towards legislating b- black bodies right When it comes to technology, Black folk have certain ideas about how it's supposed to be used because they are also Americans. So, in the book, I talk about one of my line brothers, although I don't identify him. And when he gave his kids smartphones, this was. Years ago, 700 years ago, he insisted that they had to do text messages to their friends only through the use of proper grammatic construction and punctuation. No LOLs, no emojis, no slang, he said, because he didn't want them losing the capacity to write the college essays and reports that they would have to write for corporate America, whatever job they took. Wow. Right. And he's not alone. Like I know lots of, uh, folk who really seek to constrain their children's time and energy on social media, but also, uh, word PowerPoint and the like, because they want them to become functional, uh, economic beings. Right. But also, especially for young girls, functional moral beings. Right. And that, that, impulse, uh, is exacerbated by black folks knowledge that if we don't, they're going to be deemed always already criminal, always already deviant and whatever systems they get in. That makes sense. So I talk about respectability in the book too, as a libidinal frame, uh, ratchetry, which is one of my favorite words ever, Uh, (laughs) and, uh, racism as a libidinal frame too. Uh, even though I argue that racism is not the only thing that determines who I am, Right I still would be foolish to dismiss the fact that it has an effect upon the ways in which we interact with the with the internet and uh, network data infrastructures, right and so I try to do a little bit of an exploration in that as well.
0: so you also talk a bit about leisure and the capacity mm-hmm. for leisure, but also connecting leisure on the internet or the use of technology in general for black folks to the green book and how that's kind of a starting point when thinking mm-hmm. about safety. Security, but just being able to move through space as a Black person Mm -hmm. and still be able to have this leisure. I have multiple
1: opportunities to identify networked information used by Black folk, Mm -hmm. right, for transit, right? So I could have used the Underground Railroad, but what is the leisure capacity in the Underground (laughs) Railroad? You know what right. I mean? Like, it's specifically dedicated towards freeing people. But the not, Negro Motors Green Book, uh, in many ways, like early uh, online efforts like uh, MSBEG, was meant to provide guidance to a space that had pathways, had roads, had interstates, right? But those interstates pathways and roads were not configured for the safety of Black bodies. Mm-hmm. In many ways, those roads traveled through territories which were explicitly inimical to black bodies. Many of the places that the Black Book, I mean, that the Negro Motor's Green Book talks about are sundown towns in the Midwest and West or the Gothic South, right? Uh, which in many ways, I don't slow down in Alabama. Like I'm not stopping in Alabama for no particular reason. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> not even at a Love truck stop, right? Because even though I understand that those places are now safer for me to get gas, that's not a place where I should hang out. Um, the Negro Motors green book, though not not only notices the place where you can refuel your car, right, so that you can continue traveling, thus fulfilling one component of leisure where your body gets fed, right? Uh, but it also provided places where people black people could go on vacation or rest while they were on the road to their vacation, right. And so I think leisure should always be. And going back to the libidinal, leisure should be understood as a component in our travels throughout the world because we also want to enjoy ourselves. Our travels are not an endless trudge through the valley of the shadow of death or whatever the the psalm says, right? It's also that those moments when we are laughing and joking on our way to the next function, pre-gaming, whatever you wanna call it, right? But we wanna have spaces where we can relax and be ourselves. So the Negro Motors Green Book provided information on the black beaches in Atlantic City, the black enclaves on Lake Michigan and Northern Michigan where the newly emergent middle-class were already buying homes. Uh, to get away from their factory work to places in Florida, right? Where black folk were congregating on black only beaches, but still knowing how to get there and when, right? And so that I find that capacity for leisure to be really interesting, really interesting is not the right word. uh, Important, right? To understanding blackness uh, in addition, blackness away from resistance and oppression.
0: How do resistance, oppression, leisure, joy, various other things work together as expressions of Blackness in the digital space? I
1: don't know. You don't trap me with that question.
0: <laughs>
1: I mean, I have an answer, but it involves the use of a word that, you know, might get you bleeped. You ready? There's no FCC on podcasts. Go for it. Okay. You said it. So on uh, January 17th, 2017, I think that's the right day, um, uh, Yahoo Business, we can always talk badly about Yahoo, Uh, decided to publish a tweet linking to an article about Trump's need for further spending authorizations for his military. Mm -hmm. And they published it, uh, the caption on top of a picture of a a naval vessel, and they said, Trump's gonna need a nigger Navy. (laughs) They took the tweet down in 20 minutes. But the damage had been done, like uh, Black folk don't sleep, apparently. And so somebody already captured uh, the screenshot of the tweet. And uh, I bring this up often in my job talks, one, because I like saying the word nigger to audiences who are not ready for it. uh, But also because (laughs) Black folk who are on Twitter uh, already know what I'm about to talk about. And they immediately start grinning, right? So nigger Navy could have been an exercise in uh, white apologia. Right, where we're sorry that we did that, we didn't mean to offend you. It could have been a technical thing where they said, oh, it's just a typo, uh, and I'm looking at my keyboard like, yes, B and N are together, but my keyboard does not autocorrect bigger to nigger, right? <laughs> <laughs> or it could have been a moment for, you know, the black radical Twitterati and Tumblrati to rise up and say, this is an evidence of a man holding us down. What it became, though, was this hashtag where Uh, everyday Twitter started expressing uh, what it meant to be in the military as a nigger, uh, but from Black parenting commonplaces, Black cultural commonplaces, Black celebrity commonplaces, and by commonplace I mean the things that you and I would understand as Black people when we're exposed to them in a particular environment. So like, if you and I were in an audience at Microsoft Research, and the speaker said, who is Luther Vandross, you and I would look at each other like, we know who Luther Vandross is. (laughs) These folks don't know, right? Mm-hmm. And if they do know Luther, they only know post like nineteen ninety seven Luther. They don't know early Luther, right? So these black commonplaces, right? So uh, my favorite example because it's easy uh, is uh, the current the internet meme where it has uh, interlocutor a colon and what they say, and then the response and a colon and what they say. So Trump, we're going to war, black nigger navy. Who all gonna be there? <laughs> <laughs> yeah or a variation we're going to war in the Persian Gulf nigger navy you got persian gulf gas money
0: <laughs> yeah yeah
1: right and so it it emerges as dark humor right it emerges as straight up humor but it also emerges as cultural critique right because at the core of all these statements about black culture is an understanding that the white folk have always sought the places in a position that's not uh, beneficial to us. And we understand that we have to go along, but we go say something in right. the process. Mm-hmm. Right. And so there's the, there's your joy, there's your resistance, there's your racism, right. There's your creativity and innovation and invention, which is what I also like to talk about. Right. Uh, my other favorite, and there's a picture in the book, totally unrelated. This young woman went on vacation uh, in the Caribbean. And apparently one of the tourist photographs she took was herself sitting in a bikini and scuba gear and a lawn chair underwater, completely underwater. Right. And one of the people I follow on Twitter grabbed up that picture and said, waiting uh, for my man to come home from the nigger Navy.
0: <laughs> right. Right.
1: Uh, and I put that in the book because it's really interesting because her sitting underwater has nothing to do with the military. Right. right? Right, but the caption relates the long waits that military spouses have, especially Black military spouses, when their men are deployed over and over and over again. Right, uh, and so I found that to be a compelling example of joy, resistance, and critique. What do you hope people get from your book? Sales, um, <laughs> <laughs> right? Okay, it's a good question. Right, right. so uh, uh, I'm good friends with Sophia Noble. Mm-hmm. Uh, hey, Sophia, I love you, uh, and Uh, I I have been presenting recently with Ruha Benjamin and they have these really good scholars. Yes. Two brilliant scholars. They have these really compelling structural takes on the implicit and explicit racism, uh, constructed by algorithmic and, uh, informational, uh, infrastructures. Right. Um, and I think that's compelling work. Like, I think we're long overdue. Uh, I should shout out Chris Gilliard, too, who came up with the term technological redlining. How society has always already put us in the trick bag when it comes to these codifications of existing uh, juridical, um, educational, and all these other institutions that we're a part of, right? We could talk about Compass. Uh, we could talk about Ring. We could talk about Clearview, right? Uh, the, <laughs> have you heard about the Willie Lynch case? Is this new Willie Lynch? Yes, this is new Willie Lynch. It just so happens to share a name with that infamous document. But oh boy, got caught up because somebody in Florida, I believe, used the Clearview database to match his picture to five possibles for a crime that was committed. The system said that he was using, said he was not a good match, but they prosecuted him anyway. Whoa. Right? And so we're already, we're always already captured as deviants, as bad, as bad niggas, right, in these systems but I see my book as coming at it from a slightly different perspective. Without going full-on utopian, because I resist that, I, I drag Afrofuturism a little bit in this particular book. Um, without going full-on utopian, I wanted to talk about the expressive uh, and informational capacities, the libidinal capacities of blackness when presented with a new medium in which to perform ourselves.
0: Okay, so I'm going to have to pause you because you use some language that I understand but other people may not. So trick bag, <laughs> I know what trick bag means. People listening uh, may not know what trick bag means. <laughs>
1: uh, it's kind of the opposite of the treat bag. So, <laughs> 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 From a Halloween perspective, it's uh, that, that box full of peas and uh, broccoli. And I mean that bag full of peas and broccoli instead of Snickers and, um, Or, you know, the longstanding Halloween nightmares about getting needles and and razors and apples and stuff like that, right? It's supposedly good for us, but what it ends up being is full of stuff that is not uh, enjoyable or uh, informative, right? Or uh, vivifying, right? It doesn't bring us life, right? Uh, That's the the casual definition. What's the other thing I need you to
0: define? Why you wanna drag Afrofuturism? (laughs)
1: It's a very gentle drag. So I see the black techno culture that I came up with for the book uh, to be complementary to Afrofuturism. Mm -hmm. But I get frustrated with Afrofuturism because they always default to artistic and literary genres Mm -hmm. to describe what they think a future would be. Right? And I have mad love for Janelle Monae, but I know Baby is tired of carrying Afrofuturism <laughs> on her back right now, right? <laughs> Octavia Butler, God rest her soul, like I don't think Octavia even saw herself as an Afrofuturist when she first started writing, mm. right? Even though she centered Black women in her tales, that that really wasn't what she was thinking, but she's been captured, right? And so while literary, poetic, artistic, mm. televisual, uh, musical. Uh, uh, genres of expression all do have elements where we engage with the futurity, of futurity of technology, future possibilities. Um, it doesn't capture the everyday, right? Uh, and that's why I love Kashan's, uh Miss Thompson's uh, articulation of Black Girl Magic because it captures the the wonderment of making a dollar out of fifteen cent,
0: mm.
1: right? Because that's a trick, right? That's magic. <laughs> yeah. Right? Uh, I was talking to um, UIC, no, um, Georgia Tech the other day, and I talked about how Whole Foods sells $18 salmon, but my first introduction to salmon was salmon patties, mm-hmm. which come from a $3 can, mm-hmm. right? <laughs> salmon croquettes, yeah. That are delicious, yes. right? Uh, and so, you know, making something that supports and sustains life, right, from the bare minimum resources, the idea that we think chitlins are delicious, okay? Oh, <laughs> I think
0: Okay,
1: let's say. Or, you know, the greens, which were not the productive part of the veggies, right? Turnip greens, collard greens, kale, right? We learned how to cook those and make them edible. Right. And delicious. Yeah. Right. We weren't uh, drying them out or sauteing them and leaving them to be tough and crunchy and difficult to taste. Right. We added flavor, right, uh-huh. and seasoning and made them good things. And so that every day was what I want to capture. And the internet gives me that capacity for black techno culture because it's full of everyday people minding a black ass business, but still talking about their engagements with the world and technology through technology. So what's next for you, Andre? I need to fully flesh out Black Joy. Uh, I have talked about it. I've presented on it, but I haven't written it. Uh-huh. Uh, I'm going to get back to writing about video games and blackness uh-huh. um, because I have a, a really good, I think it's good, article on uh, the survival horror video game Resident Evil 5, uh, which talks mm-hmm. about gender and uh, race in Africa. But I, there's there's so much other stuff. Like I need to walk a, write about Uh, The Walking Dead, um, the game, right? I need, there's a video game and this I'll share with you um, that was published in the mid 2000s. It's based on Madden, uh, which every black kid knows, most kids know, right? Uh, NFL style football game where you control each individual player to march up and down the field and score points, right? But it's called the Historically Black College Football Experience. Hmm. Right. Which means that which which by which the developers took on to say, we're going to go to the 30 odd, it might be more right, historically black colleges and capture in digital form their marching band formations and the songs that they perform routines to. Wow. Right. So it's this archival effort as well. One that's rare because, you know, HBCU band directors don't be giving up their stuff like that's proprietary. Right. So they captured it and then they put in the game. So at the same time that Madden was super popular, although it still is, there was a game called Rock Band where you had to control music by pressing buttons and making prompts. So they mapped the marching band formations and music to a rock band interface that it plays during halftime. So one of the things, let me explain for the audience that don't know. Black people consider halftime of football games to be the fifth quarter, right? (laughs) Because we really are, many of us really don't go for the football. Right. But the bands, the bands are on point, the show bands, right? And so we go to see the band, right? And so they recognize that aspect of black culture and they put the black bands in there through a rock band style press buttons to make the move interface. And if your band does well, if you make your band perform properly, you get a boost going into the second half. Right, so it's this combination of video game culture that's mainstream, but also football culture that's very specifically centered around
0: blackness. Right, and I find that fascinating. Right, and it needs to be written up. So I got stuff, I got stuff, I'm sure. Well, we're looking forward to reading whatever it is that you put out. And mm-hmm. I want to thank you for taking time to talk to me today. Anytime, Jasmine, anytime, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Bye. <smart noise>